0: You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview podcast.
1: Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast, bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our network of foreign correspondents. And a Happy New Year. I'm Patrick Smith. Our podcast this week is a personal look at America at a crossroads moment of its history. I talked to Simon Carswell, our Washington correspondent, in the job that I used to do, as he prepares to return to Dublin from his posting there about the US he found when he went out first, and the US he leaves now, the land of Trump. From here, the transition is bewildering. Is this a country gone mad? What does Trump represent about modern America? And our friends and family who are still migrating there in large numbers, what are they finding? Is there such a thing as an Irish community? Simon's talk coincided with Barack Obama's second term, and in Obama, we had, for many Americans, not least in the black community, a repository of hope. Does he leave a lasting legacy, Simon? How did you find America w- when you arrived first, and particularly the DC bubble?
0: Um, the DC bubble I found to be a very interesting place. When you arrive, you kind of think is it's unlike other cities like New York. It feels a little bit more transient. People are there for work purposes. And certainly that was my understanding of the city having visited. I first visited when I was 21 on my J1 uh, visa, summer visa in 1987. And I had good friends who lived there and a friend who studied in Trinity with me. So I knew the city quite well from visiting it over the years. But I'd actually noticed a change quite a bit. Um, You had kind of more established government departments, the likes of the Department of Homeland Security, which that whole security industry had created a whole new tier of government in Washington. But also it became, when I moved there, it had become uh, two things. It had become a um, very popular city for graduates. So a lot of kind of 20-somethings were living there. And people who, uh, you know, 20 years ago, because of the crime in Washington, D.C., they used to live outside the city. So it was known as Chocolate City because of uh, the, the, the majority African-American population and the vanilla suburbs. So everyone would leave at 6, 5, 6 o'clock when they finish work and go out to the suburbs. And that had changed when we moved there. More people had wanted to live closer to work. You'd saw more restaurants and bars, hipster bars and cafes opening up so it was a much more livable city uh, and we chose Capitol Hill because as well as being near downtown and a very nice place to live, leafy neighbourhood, really good schools. I have a six-year-old and a four-year-old, two daughters, and um, we wanted somewhere where we could live near the school, live near where I worked, live near all the kind of important uh you know, transportation hubs because I'm going to be traveling a lot, coming out of Union Station to go up to New York, going out of Reagan National Airport to fly to various parts of the country. So we wanted somewhere that would be easy to live in and it was a city that we just really uh, grew to love, uh, mainly because of how much it had changed. And actually, a couple of years before we moved there, uh, the gentrification that had taken place in the city, it, it had become, for the first time, a um, non-black majority. So the, the, the white population were in the majority before we moved there. So it really a city that was going through major changes. But what made it interesting as well is there were so-called transition neighbourhoods that were quite edgy. Uh, we lived near um, Anacostia, across the river, which is a tough neighbourhood. Uh, The northeast part of the city was a, a part of the city that was gentrifying and it was still a bit edgy. So there was there was that aspect to it as well. But it was really kind of a charming city to live in in the four years that we were there. And did the kids went to school the kids went to a local school yeah they went to a school called Mori and um, my younger daughter went to a different school called appletree just around the corner but it was right on the hill and a lot of our a um, lot of the, the parents of our friends uh, of our kids friends became um, good friends of ours a lot of journalists uh, lived on the hill a lot of politicians a lot of congressional staffers their kids went to the school um, I mean, one of the shocking things for us, which really brought home the country we were living in, um, there was the shooting at Navy Yard in September 2013, where a um, young man, 34 year old man with um, mental health issues uh, arrived at work with a shotgun and he killed 12 people in a space, a very short space of time. And we got a call from Amy's school saying the school was in lockdown and we couldn't go. We were told not to come to the school to pick up our child because they were fearful of what might be going on in the neighbourhood. And that really um, alarmed us and t- you know t- taught us what you know really what kind of country we were living in and the risks that were around us.
1: But a, a lot of people look on on Washington D.C. and and indeed New York as a sort of country apart from the rest
0: of of the U.S. You spent a lot of time on the road. I did, I did, and the more time I spent on the road, the more I realised that Washington was a bubble. And you know they call it the Beltway, which is the equivalent of the M50 around Washington is, it is insulated from the rest of the country and in the four years that I was there I saw that anger build um, uh, against Washington. Washington politics and Washington politicians were reviled around the country and we first saw it with the government shutdown in 2013 where and um, the likes of the Texas Senator Ted Cruz, who was an obstructionist in Congress, his whole reason for being in Congress was to make sure that Congress didn't work and to make government dysfunctional. And that was all part of the Tea Party movement that grew up in 2010. So that really that was the peak of that movement with that government shutdown. And when I was out on the road um, over the years covering the midterm elections in 2014, I saw the very anti-Washington feeling and really the the seeds of the Trump campaign growing then that real anger towards uh, towards Washington. I remember telling someone on a trip down to Austin, I was at a party of Republican uh, party people, and I said, oh, I live in Washington. And they said, oh, I'm really sorry. Um, and that's the kind of reaction you got outside of Washington. There's um, a cultural uh,
1: gulf. I mean, I, I know, for example, on the on the issue of, of guns, uh, many uh, uh, people in Europe find it very difficult to understand the attachment of uh, red state America to, to their guns. Mm. But you... you uh, you, you. I remember you were interviewing a guy in Nevada about uh, who was a very proud owner of, of,
0: of uh, a whole armory. Well, uh, the, the other, the one that stands out most was when I went to the National Rifle Association annual meeting in um, in Houston, in Texas. It was 2013 and i got to meet the second amendment activists there the people who supported the you know, the right to bear arms and, and they they viewed it as a constitutional right it was an absolute right that they felt they were entitled to as individuals as citizens and it was an interesting exchange that I'd have with people when I met there. I said, well, explain to me this, where, where this comes from. And they said, well, you know, we, we feel we're entitled to it. And they would put it back at me and say, well, you're a journalist. You live by the, the First Amendment right, the freedom of speech. And if we give up our Second Amendment right, you're next. You're the First Amendment. They're going to come after you. So it was an interesting Uh, defence of their position and it's very very Very, difficult to argue against that very Uh, much a
1: sense though uh of them and us of the the washington conspiracy against america
0: of um uh, some big government against america and that is deeply embedded Absolutely, in places like Texas, in um, places in parts of Appalachia, in Virginia in particular, which is just outside uh, DC suburbs, Northern Virginia is the DC suburbs, a very proud uh, record of gun ownership um, and they see it as, uh, there was the conspiracy theories out there that Obama was after their guns and after uh, he was intent on creating a registry of gun owners with a view to taking those guns off them. and. I understand why people have an interest in hunting. I understand why people have a feel they have a right to own guns, but I could never understand the right to own an AR-15 and these um, high-capacity uh, military assault rifles. It made no sense. And when you go to places like that gun show, uh, you know, you have the AR-15s um, it come in pink for the woman in your life and uh, things like that would just kind of strike me just how uh, how removed these people are and how how uh, what a different world they live in.
1: Um, but part of that cultural thing is for example a very strong commitment to evangelical uh, Protestantism.
0: Yeah I found that in Iowa when I was covering the Iowa caucuses and um, I visited some rural parts of northwestern Iowa where there's very strong evangelical Christian strongly conservative um, they believed very much in in strong social conservative issues. They're anti-abortion, uh, anti anti same-sex marriage, um, and in in that period, uh, people like Ted Cruz was very very popular. He's um, Cruz was was the runner-up to Donald Trump in the Republican primary. But you had a lot of people in those kind of areas very very supportive of uh, very conservative people, um, which is strange in that they threw their weight, eventually behind Donald Trump, who was a you know, former Democrat and uh, trice married billionaire from New York.
1: And you had a strange mix of both cultural traditions in in California. Then in you know where which has a reputation of being a sort of hippie state, but is also deeply conservative in in, in part two.
0: Yeah, um, the Central Valley in California is very very conservative. Places around Fresno, uh, areas like that. I covered them. Um, an anti-immigration rally that was held by um, uh, members of a town, residents of a town about a two hour drive south of L.A., um, still a good 100 miles from the Mexican border but they were objecting to the number of um, immigrant minors that were crossing the border and were being housed in detention centres, Customs and Border Patrol um, and immigration detention centres. And their fear was that the immigration officials, if they weren't being monitored carefully, that they would just let them out in the streets and they'd become uh, homeless in California and they'd migrate to these sanctuary cities, you know, the likes of San Francisco or some other parts of the country, and that this was the government's attempt to um, bring migrants into the country illegally.
1: Talking about immigration, of course, uh, brings us to to the Irish community, uh, which is which is actually several communities in the sense that the a they're very different. Actually, I I found when I was there the old settled uh, Irish who'd been there for a generation, two generations, and then the new Irish who were more tech savvy, younger, more mobile.
0: Uh, how how? how did you find that Irish community? Well, I certainly got that that same, that sense of, of, as you described, the community. It's a much older generation of Irish Americans who came in in the 70s and 80s. And uh, I think because of the the restrictions that were in place after 9-11 on immigration to the US, you saw a lot more people, particularly after the the Celtic Tiger crash here is much more immigration to Canada and to the Middle East and to Australia and the UK rather than to the US. It was much more difficult to get into the US. And I think that you saw a much older uh, generation of Irish immigrants in the US. And But there was also this, um, you'd come across a lot of Irish who had emigrated to the US with um, L visas and H-1B visas, the working visas, and that they would have transferred with jobs in the likes of Facebook, Google, uh, a lot of Irish and Washington young professionals who are working in law firms and accountancy firms and government-related firms as well, but nothing like the numbers that you would have seen emigrating in the 80s and 90s. And it was kind of uh, aspects of the Irish-American community uh, in the US is kind of... It was sad sometimes that in parts of New York where there are a much older generation and you, saw a lot of, you see a lot of the support uh, mechanisms that are in place in Boston, New York, supporting those older... Um, uh, sick Irish uh, people who have left in the 80s and 90s and uh, I think it really it shows that there was this gap that existed that really there wasn't um, a route for legal migration from Ireland and that there was that big gap in the Irish American community and um, Australia and Canada and other countries benefited from Irish immigration rather than the US
1: and the extent to which they're they're organized as a community uh, around particularly the the immigration issue
0: well I think there's a sense that uh, particularly here, that all Irish Americans are Democrats, and that's not the case. It's they're split very evenly. And in fact, a lot of Irish Americans who have done very well and have um, migrated out to the suburbs of New York and Boston, they're Republican. And in fact, there's a, there I came across quite a few who are supporting Donald Trump. Um, so I think the sense that they're Irish were like you know Kennedy Democrats. Uh, Certainly there are a large number, but there were in no way an homogenous group supporting one candidate or one um, uh, one political party. Um, and I think they were quite splintered. And, you know, a lot of people would argue that there isn't an Irish American vote. I think there's definitely a, a Catholic vote, a white Catholic vote. And maybe the Irish fall into that. But I don't think there is a strong um, cohesive Irish American vote um saying that though certain parts of the campaign you saw like Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton during the Democratic primary um, speak specifically to Irish American audiences so they they felt there was something in that community that they could tap.
1: There was an old uh, uh, a congressman who I knew uh, well in my time who, who, if you like manifests what you're saying uh, who's a Republican, Peter King who who uh, was very involved supporting Sinn Féin and indeed the IRA in his old days and is now an extremely right-wing uh, anti-immigrant uh, campaigner in, in the in the US. It's a strange contrast.
0: It is. And I mean, if you look at Trump's cabinet, uh, the guy who's heading up the budget office now is Mick Mulvaney, who's a Tea Party uh, Republican. And uh, he's very proud of his Irish roots. He's from South Carolina. So he's not your typical... Irish American politician from New York or Boston or Scranton, uh, you know Philadelphia. It's it's so, it's a very broad church Irish America, and you know there's aspects of it that it doesn't reflect modern Ireland. You know a lot of the Irish American groups that have been around for centuries would be very very conservative. So I don't think that reflects modern Ireland, but it is an aspect of Irish America.
1: You're listening to Worldview. I'm talking to Washington correspondent Simon Carswell. We'll be back after this short break. Hi, my name's Hugh Linehan, and I just wanted to take a few seconds to tell you about the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. Every week, I'm joined by our own expert analysts, along with elected politicians and people who just have interesting political ideas. If you're interested in how the system works, how it could be made better, and what effects politics really has on your life, join me every Wednesday for Inside Politics. You can find it on irishtimes.com slash podcasts or on your preferred podcast app. Turning to Trump and and the phenomenon that is Trump, do do you have a sense that you managed to get inside the head of Trump's America? What is it that has made him so successful?
0: Well, I think the starting point you have to consider when you're thinking about Donald Trump is, and this is a figure that's often quoted, is that um, seven in every ten Americans are unhappy with the direction that the country was going in. And that Donald Trump, leaving aside all the rhetoric, all the nasty things, all the insults, He was an outsider. He was an anti-establishment figure. And he was um, advocating change, big change, major change. And that was incredibly appealing to people. Um, And then he played the populist card. Um, He also spoke to uh, voters who felt left behind, not just left behind, Uh, by their parties, and I think that what he did with the Republican Party was he took advantage of the fact that there was this anger towards the Republican Party. The Tea Party wave came in and took the House of Representatives in 2010. They took the Senate in 2014, and yet all that the Tea Party had promised had not happened, and Donald Trump tapped that anger with the party and took advantage of this really splintered field and started peddling policies that were completely counter to the Republican platform. He started talking about uh, ripping up trade agreements, which is, you know, that was the, the basis of a lot of um uh, certainly, Republican economic policy uh, it was free trade agreements with various countries around the world. NAFTA with the NAFTA agreement in the mid '90s with um, Mexico and Canada. He was saying this is a disaster. This is uh, this has caused all the all the problems that you're seeing, the loss of manufacturing jobs. And there's if if anyone is looking for a a book, I think that was published this year to understand the Trump phenomenon. There was a fabulous memoir written by a writer called J.D. Vance called Hillbilly Elgee and he really nailed why Trump was popular. Uh, he wrote about he grew up in southwestern Ohio and he wrote about the Rust Belt, former Union Democrats. But really, these were people who looked for a champion and um, who looked for a figure who could um, speak in an unfiltered way, say things that uh, people weren't saying, tell politicians exactly what they thought of them. and. Uh, J.D. Vance described uh, Trump as the needle in the collective vein of the country and he came at this kind of pivotal moment where there was this anger uh, bubbling up and he, he made promises that, I mean, we're going to see whether they, they come true, probably won't, um, some big promises that he made, but it just came at the right time and I think that that's why we spoke before about the Beltway bubble, um the, the media in the U.S. is largely based on the East Coast, largely based in New York and Washington, and they didn't see this coming. Um, and one one interesting story that happened during my time there was Eric Cantor, who was the second highest ranking Republican in the House of Representatives. He lost in a primary fight, and it was really unexpected. I think there was only two newspapers or two media outlets that actually saw that coming. And that, for me, was a sign that something's happening here, something at the grassroots uh, there's a grassroots anger there and Trump just capitalized on it
1: and you you uh, attended many of the rallies both his and hillary's and uh, um, uh, democratic
0: rallies uh, how did you find those rallies how do you, you found the people there um, trump's rallies were like rock concerts you know it was like people coming to hear his greatest hits of sound bites you know and uh, eventually, the rallies became so popular that you know there was the chance that everyone knew the Locker up, um, uh, the drain the swamp, chance the uh, build a wall. You heard all these. It, it really was like a greatest hits of like some performer coming to uh, to your local town, and you had to go see him. And there was this this huge enthusiasm gap between uh, Trump and Clinton. You had long traffic jams heading into Trump rallies, long queues of people. I mean, I saw people queuing in the most unbelievable heat and the most unbelievable cold for hours just waiting to hear this guy speak and then you go to a Hillary Clinton rally and it would be quarter full Uh, you'd find you know older types kind of more affluent um, and you'd ask them so why are you supporting Hillary and they're like well she's you know very qualified she's uh, she's really the best person we could have as president yet there was no kind of uh, I guess no bumper sticker uh slogan that they could unite behind and it was stronger together in the end but you know make america great again was a really effective uh, bumper sticker message that just captured a lot of uh, the anger a lot of the energy a lot of the frustration that many of these people in the rust belt who felt left behind left felt left behind with the fact that their communities had been hollowed out by the loss of the jobs steel mill uh, steel mill towns in pennsylvania the the coal mining towns in virginia and west virginia these people just felt very frustrated. They felt very frustrated and felt like um, they've really been displaced by all the changes that had taken place in the country. The, both the rapid social changes that had taken place, the likes of same-sex marriage, um, and really uncomfortable with the was the branding of America that America wasn't quite the country that they, uh, they the country they grew up in. But one one thing that particularly the older people that you spoke to was. The sense that their kids would not would have um, would be worse off than they were, and their grandkids, and that was. Without doubt, wherever you went in the country, that was a message that you heard from Trump people uh, all the time.
1: Well, my recollection of of, of Hillary Clinton campaigning uh, was a rally in in upstate New York when when I was the correspondent. She was standing for the the Senate, and she came on and and got polite applause from the crowd. And her husband arrived an hour late, and the place went wild. Yeah, and it was extraordinary contrast uh, in terms of effect. On, on the crowd on, in terms of the ability to to mobilize and and enthuse
0: and that was really the problem you, you brought your kids to some of our Rallies. Yeah, I mean, I was on the road so much and I was away from home so much, so I wanted to let my kids know what I did and the kind of events that I went to. So uh, well, there was a rally during the Acela primaries, as are known, named after the rail line that runs between Washington and New York. So the primary was in Maryland. So Baltimore is only 40 minute drive up the road. So I brought my kids <clears throat> along to it. Amy, who's six and Kate, who's four. And uh, the two girls were very enthusiastic about the fact that there could be a girl president. It was a big deal for them. And uh, I recall Amy made a sign. uh, She said, um, go Hillary, no to Trump. And she had the H done as Hillary did it. And what was quite funny when we went into the rally was um, we had this kind of uh, fairly preppy uh, Clinton staffer objected to us bringing in the poster. And I thought, well, there you go. This is the difference between at the time it was Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. And you go to a Bernie Sanders rally and it's like a pageant. You know, everyone's being really creative. They've got on their own posters and they're very funny, some of them. And it's real grassroots. It's real bottom-up stuff. And then here we are going into a Hillary Clinton rally and you don't get more grassroots than a six-year-old like designing their own poster in support of Hillary and being told, sorry, you can't bring your poster in. So that was an example of just kind of an eye-rolling moment. Um, but my youngest, Kate, actually, uh, Vanessa, my wife, I was back in the press pen and I was reporting on the event and my wife had my daughter Kate on her shoulders throughout the entire rally. It was quite funny. Afterwards, we looked at the Baltimore Sun coverage and, Kate is starstruck by Hillary and started waving kind of constantly trying to get her attention and the next day when I looked at the Baltimore Suns footage all you could see is Kate's hand in front of Hillary's face for about 45 minutes but eventually she got away from Clinton so she was thrilled at that but uh, Amy wasn't impressed by, by by Clinton she liked Bernie uh, because of the bird landing on the podium famously at one of the rallies so she thought uh, some magical quality to Bernie Sanders She's
1: basically got socialist instincts She
0: is yeah she's, I she's anti-establishment is our Amy but um and they it's funny actually even the kids uh, in school like they had a sense and this this is nothing that you know they picked up from from adults it was the kids talking themselves about they recognized Trump was this decisive divisive figure uh, they recognized that he was a bully and you know he, they heard him yeah. speak and you know I found myself you know you'd have the TVs on in the house when you're working and uh, you know the kids would be home from school and you'd be watching something on CNN or one of the channels. And you'd see the girls like watching Trump speaking and you're kind of realizing, wow, you know, they can't watch this. They can't watch him say certain things. And I think that was a shocker for a lot of people is, you know, that you had, you couldn't allow your kids to watch and observe and participate in that process because of this individual and this example that he was setting every day, several times a day.
1: And that he might scare them, actually. Mm -hmm
0: yeah I, I, th- I think that I think that's the terrifying thing like we, uh, our, our babysitter Rosario was from Honduras originally and she was she'd been a citizen in the US for 20 years, a wonderful woman and she had her own business um, and she used to come over and look after our girls and just last week um, she was she, she told us a story about how it was she had a row and she was in traffic with another motorist and the motorist, Who's white and she's Latina, um, gestured to her, you know, as if he had a badge or a nice badge. He was saying, you know, this she's never happened to her in her twenty years. And I think that Trump and what he said and his rhetoric has emboldened a lot of people to do and say certain things. It's, I think it's brought a pretty ugly side of America to the surface. And and people are seeing it, you know, even in liberal Washington DC. Yeah, I, there
1: is a sense, a lot of people say, I, it'll be all right now. Uh, the responsibilities of office will uh, make him more responsible and uh, it won't be as bad now that he's, he's in actually in office. And I was speaking to a friend in Annapolis who said, yeah, it's not going to be as bad as you think. He said, it's going to be a lot worse. And, and there is this thing, you know, terrible unknown, uh, this sense of, of what on earth uh, is going to happen now.
0: Yeah, and this is the kind of debate that was going on as as Trump was doing more and more successful. I mean, he went in to the Republican primary and he's, he's no chance of winning this, he won it. Uh, he heads into the general, actually, he's no chance of winning this and he won it. And your sense, my sense was during the campaign, and one pivotal moment was when he won the Florida primary, which was in March, and he saw off Marco Rubio, who was a potential challenger. And he did this really interesting press conference, Trump, where suddenly he left behind a bit, a lot of the anger, a lot of the bombast. And he started, dare I say, appearing more presidential in some of the things he was saying. There was a really interesting question asked, you know, is this like the art of the deal? Is this like your book where you adopt an extreme position at at the outset of your negotiating? Your opening bid is this, and you're going to come into the centre. And I think that's what people are trying to figure out now, is the campaign. Were these just opening bids? Were these just starting points for this man? And is he a pragmatist? And you had Obama come out recently saying he didn't think Trump as an ideologue. He's a pragmatist. I think what's terrified people is he's filled his cabinet with ideologues. He may be a pragmatist, and that might be part of the process. He wants a cabinet filled with people. Tell me the most extreme position on this, and maybe I'll he pivot back. I, I don't think so. We are talking about trade and the paradox is that he has people who are completely opposed to
1: trade, who want to be very tough on China, and he has people who are, are, are free traders par excellence, who, who've, who've lived for trade and who, who believe in trade. It's, it's a very peculiar... Uh, cabinet, from that point of view as well as the number of generals and the number of
0: billionaires there's, there's, there's and the number con- of Goldman Sachs executives or former uh, Goldman Sachs executives in, in, in indeed
1: well. indeed it is uh, completely contradictory and, and you, you wonder if there's any coherence there at all
0: yeah and it's it's kind of like you know the dog who caught the car in a way it's like well what does he do with it now and um, and I I really think pe- the media in particular is going to try and figure out how how this guy is going to govern um, and, you know, if he's if he's taking soundings from his advice at cabinet, then, you know, we're going to have uh, anti-immigrant, very staunchly anti-immigrant policies. We're going to have some strongly anti-trade policies. America first, as he promised. He's going to fulfill a lot of the campaign promises that he has. We have a lot of Iran hooks on the uh, on the cabinet. Is he going to rip up the nuclear deal with Iran? Is he going to rip up the deal uh, with Cuba? Um, and is he going to sign all sorts of executive orders that uh, dismantle Obama's legacy, which is which he can do quite easily because Obama's legacy is largely built on executive orders, which are not lasting at all and were designed and introduced to bypass Congress because Obama didn't have the support of, of people on Capitol Hill.
1: Um, Obama, in the last few days, has been trying to copper fasten some of his legacy by uh, issuing uh, Instructions about digging, um, drilling for oil in in the Arctic and in the in the, in the Atlantic, uh, which appear to be difficult for Trump to dismantle. But in other ways, you're you you're saying Obama's legacy can just be taken apart piece by piece, and and there won't be a legacy in, in effect.
0: Well, a lot of the, for example, on the immigration stuff, the DACA order, which is the um, to uh, to 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 allow temporary reprieve from deportation for kids. Uh, born are brought to the U.S. Uh, as illegal and undocumented immigrants. That can be uh, unwound with a stroke of a pen. A lot of the environmental regulations can be uh, upended. I mean, he's put someone in to run the EPA who's a climate change denier. Um, his Energy Secretary, Rick Perry, the former Texas governor, is, is a climate change denier who's been funded pretty much throughout his entire political career by the oil and gas industry. So... And this is a man who wanted to abolish. So yeah, it's quite possible that he could uh, overturn a lot of what Obama did. Ten, ten years from now, are we going to be able to say Obama did this for America? I think his lasting legacy, obviously, is the fact, the, the historic uh, nature of his election as the first black president. Obviously, that's uh, that's 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 protected and that's there. Um, I think Obamacare could very easily get brought. It got brought down, could get chipped away at. Now, Trump has said there are parts of it that he likes. He likes the fact that if you have a pre-existing condition and you're looking for insurance, then you can't be turned away by an insurer. Yes, there are 20 million people who have been insured under Obamacare, but there's many, many more who feel like their um, health plans have been... um, uh, They've had major problems with their health plans because of Obamacare. Um, And I think you're going to see a lot of... um, a lot of Obama's legacy on on those on those issues um, unwound, but I also think that um, I, I also think that you can you're going to see um, uh, big changes with immigration. I think that's a real worry. I think the fact that DACA is is potentially vulnerable to being overturned is, is a real risk, and that's a major uh, issue. But the the lasting legacy for Obama and I think it'll be looked back on in 10 years, is that he saved the economy from, a, from another depression. Um, I don't think, he's been, don't think he's got the praise that he deserves on that, but he really did turn around the economy. Um, now, a lot of the people that elected Trump feel that the economy hasn't benefited them, that economic recovery. Um, so it's obviously not felt right now. But then again, Obama's approval rating, which is an interesting figure, is in the mid-50s. Um, So he's, you know, he's not exactly an unpopular president right now. Thank you very much, Simon. Thank you. And
1: thanks to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Declan Conlon. I'm Patrick Smith, wishing all our listeners a Happy New Year. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts.